Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we give thanks today that we come not based on our merits. Father, as we have just sung, there is no merit of our own that can suppress your righteous anger against us, Father. Lord, we are rebels, we are sinners, we are deserving of nothing but your wrath. And yet, Father, in Christ, we are restored, we are forgiven, we are reconciled with you. And Lord, we are tasked, Father, with now living out a life that glorifies your name, something we could not do before. But Father, now we delight in that wonderful hope that we have in Christ. And so, Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace, which, as we have sung, planned all the riches of glory that we have in Christ. But, Father, our responsibility is to recognize and to receive by faith. So, Lord, today, we ask that you would continue to provide grace in Christ that you would illumine our hearts through your Spirit as He takes your Word and opens it to us. Father, that we would seek by your grace, Lord, to be changed by it. And then, Father, work within us, Lord, as we trust you. Lord, may we make the decisions necessary. May we change our lives as you work within us to change. Father, we thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Continue that work in us today. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And we are continuing, of course, as we've been going through 1 Peter for uh, the better part of, now it's been over a year, um, Never thought five chapters, man, he should be through this quickly. Well, no, there's lots of, lots of wonderful things in Peter that we've learned. And we're nearing the end, and as we near the end of this great book that Peter has written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he calls us to humility. And again, what we uh, talked about last week as we began looking at this is based upon the end of chapter 4. First Peter, that we are called, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not in, the, in chapter four, but earlier in chapter five, that we are supposed to clothe ourselves. Chapter five, verse five: Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And of course, Christian humility is the understanding that anything good accomplished in us or by us is a result of God's gracious power at work, not ourselves. As we recognize that, as that becomes the awareness of our lives, then it begins to take root within us. And instead of, as we looked at last week, thinking high thoughts about ourselves, we think true thoughts about ourselves. Recognizing our fallen nature, recognizing our proclivity to sinfulness, and recognizing the grace of God that transforms us. He calls us then, in what we're looking at this morning in, chapter, in verse 6, that as we are to clothe ourselves, he says in chapter six, or verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And so we looked at last week how the humble pilgrim looks to God's power. We see God clearly. We see his mighty hand. And when we see the might and the power and the glory and the amazing awesomeness of who our God is, How could we ever respond with pride? It should create within us true feelings of humility. But we see that humility is not the end into itself, but rather we look and live before God in humility so that, according to His plan, He may exalt us. And so we look to God's power to produce humility within us. And then we saw last week that we rest then in God's care. If we truly understand who God is, we understand His mighty power, then we can rest in that power that is sufficient for every circumstance in life. And so this humility 
places us in a place where we're no longer looking to ourselves and depending on ourselves, but we place our dependence on God. And then we find comfort in God's care for us. So how do we place our dependence on God? Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him. That the cares and concerns and burdens of this life are cast upon a God who has a mighty hand. A hand that is mightier than ours will ever be. And so we can cast our cares upon Him knowing that He has not only the ability to care for us, but then He has the posture towards us. How does God view us as His people? He cares for us. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for us. So Peter's answer, answer I'm sorry, to anxiety is humility and dependence. As we face the concerns and cares of this world, as we find anxiety creeping up in our lives, the call that Peter gives us is to cast that on the able hands of Christ and recognize His care for us as His people. And now Peter turns in verse 8 to discuss an area of anxiety that crops up within our lives. Now, it's interesting to me here that what Peter focuses on. When we tend to think of anxiety, the things we generally think of are things that we don't know, particularly regarding temporal matters. So we get anxious, for instance. We look at what's happened with inflation in this country. I mean, have you seen the price of eggs lately? All right, That seems to be the thing everyone's talking about. And so we worry, are we going to be able to, to pay for things as simple as eggs going forward? We look at it perhaps with regards to our work situation. A boss is giving us a difficult assignment or we're having difficulty with our manager at work and that creates all sorts of anxiety. We look at it regarding relational issues, whether it be a problem in our family, whether it be an issue with a friend that we have. Maybe it's health issues that we struggle with. Maybe a diagnosis of something we weren't accepting. Now, all of these things are legitimate causes of anxiety for God's people. And, of course, we're called to cast our cares upon the Lord. So the anxiousness that pulls within us in our fallenness, we give that to Christ. But it's interesting that Peter does not talk about those things. Notice what he says in verse 8. What is the thing that should be the greatest cause of anxiety for believers? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's interesting that for Peter, after calling his readers to cast all their anxieties on Christ, he then specifically singles out our spiritual battles. I wonder if your spiritual struggle with sin, your, your battle against your enemy, fills even any part of your anxiety. Do we find ourselves concerned for our spiritual state and particularly for fighting against sin? For Peter, it is the primary thing that we are to be concerned with. And so what we see thirdly as we've been looking at the humble pilgrim is the humble pilgrim prepares for spiritual battle. The humble pilgrim prepares for spiritual battle. See, the reality is, is that to not only focus our attention on the spiritual warfare we're engaged in, but to show us how we can struggle or how we can cast our spiritual struggles on the Lord, that's what Peter points us to. And if we don't take our spiritual struggles seriously, but we become so earthly-minded in all things that that's the focus of everything, then what do you think is going to happen when the attack comes? We're not going to be ready. We're not going to be prepared. And so I honestly think many Christians struggle 
with besetting sins. They struggle with defeat in their spiritual lives. And they look and they say, what's, what's the problem? And I would say Peter is saying, because you're not paying enough attention. You're not caring for your spiritual life as you ought. So what does Peter tell us to do? Well, the first thing we see is that humility recognizes and prepares for the attacks of the adversary. After calling us to humble ourselves, to cast our anxieties on Christ, Peter says, be sober and be watchful. Be sober and be watchful. Listen, humility is necessary for spiritual victory. Why? Because you cannot have spiritual victory in and of yourself. You have to recognize, again, humility begins, Christian humility begins with recognizing that anything good that is accomplished in us or by us is a result of the grace of God. And so when we resist sin, when we do not sin, it is us actually doing it, but it's not credited to our account. It is God that has done it in us. We have to recognize that reality, which means then that when we come and prepare for battle with sin, when we come and recognize our adversary is walking about trying to devour us, the power to defeat him is not in us. We humbly seek the Lord's power to do it. Paul mentions this in Galatians 6.1. He's talking specifically about how members of the church can encourage others. And he talks about if someone is caught in a transgression, those who are spiritual are supposed to restore the person in a spirit of what? Gentleness. So again, where does that gentleness come from? That gentleness comes from humility. So humility is at the base root here. And then notice the next thing that Paul says. You don't come and seek to restore people and think, well, I'm the greatest Christian since sliced bread at Bible Baptist Church. No. What do you have to do? You keep watch on yourself. Why? Because you too may be tempted. Our posture has to be one of full and complete recognition of the need to humbly seek the Lord's power as we battle against our enemy. Well, how do we do this? Well, it begins by preparing ourselves for that battle. And Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter uses two terms here. Again, look in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Sober-mindedness and watchfulness. Now, Peter begins, 1 Peter, by calling us to sober-mindedness. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. So it should be no surprise to us, if we've gone through 1 Peter, that Peter's going to tell us to do the very thing from the very beginning he called us to do. Prepare your minds for what? For action. All right? There's going to be a battle. Prepare for it. How do you prepare for it? By being sober-minded. And setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in how much of your conduct? All your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's interesting that the context of that first chapter, everything up to verse 13, so verses 1 through 12, what is Peter talking about? He's recalling the glories of salvation. He focuses on the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. He focuses on that glorious hope that we have, that our hope is cast not in ourselves but in Him, and that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And as we stand in the the stream of history of the Reformers, we rejoice in that wonderful hope. But then Peter says, don't stop there. Again, look back at what he said. As we see this, we prepare now for action. We prepare for battle. And we do this so that we can be obedient children. 
Peter is now again reminding his readers that they must be sober-minded. In fact, this, his repetition of this is a, is a linguistic and a, and a literary device that's called inclusio. And so an inclusio is he says something at the beginning and then he says something at the end. And so everything in between is sort of summed up by looking at those two things. It forms a literary unit. And so in many ways, what Peter is saying is, if you want to live the things that the Spirit has inspired me to tell you in this book, if you want to take what I've told you and put it into action, you must be sober-minded. It is essential to your spiritual health. In this time, he does not use our call to holiness as we saw God's gracious glory saving us, doesn't use that to call us to be serious about our calling, but rather he points us to the reason why we need to be serious. The second reason for sober-mindedness, who our enemy is. He also then says sober-mindedness gives its way then to being watchful. Be watchful. When we understand the seriousness of the high calling we have in Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 3.14, we are pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now notice the attitude that Paul has here. Uh, He is doing this. He's calling us to do this. We must exert ourselves in this upward call. When we recognize the reality of the cost of what our salvation cost Christ, how can we not be watchful? It's interesting, throughout the New Testament, there's a call for God's people to be watchful. It particularly has a focus on the return of Christ. Matthew 25, 10. Jesus, while they were going to by the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And the idea there is that there's a watchfulness waiting for the bridegroom to return, and those who weren't ready were shut outside. Mark 13, 35-37, he says, Therefore, stay awake, be watchful. You do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you what? Asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Be watchful. We even see it as Christ reminds those who he is, the churches in Asia, we're in Revelation 16. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who, what? Stays awake, is watchful, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. Paul, in light of this return of Christ, says, listen, you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night. We're not of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be what? Sober. He says to the church, Jesus says to the church um, at Sardis, to the angel of the church of Sardis, Write these words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. Now here's, we should really listen to what Jesus is saying here. Because so many Christians are like the church at Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are what? Dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wake up. Be watchful. So what we see here is Peter 
calling us to watchfulness because our adversary is great. Look at what he says here. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, the term that he uses here for our adversary speaks of him as the accuser or the prosecutor. The term that's used here, it's it's an uncommon term in the New Testament, and it's used of someone who lodges a complaint or brings a charge or accusation against someone. And of course, this is the devil's modus operandi for God's people. Revelation 12, 10, he speaks of how that the salvation and power and the kingdom of God, the authority of Christ has come for the devil who he describes as what? The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. And what does the devil say? How, how often is the devil accusing Christ's people? Day and night. We see it in the story of Job. The term Satan means accuser. And we see that Satan, answer the Lord, comes before God when the children of God were presenting themselves, or the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord. God says, what have you been doing? What has the devil been doing? What has Satan been doing? Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed him and the work of his hands, his possessions have increased the land. But here's the accusation. Stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. He seeks to accuse Job by saying, you've made it too easy for him. And again, as God asked him, speaks of the day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan came among them also. And actually, he goes on, God says, what have you been doing? And he says, from going to and from throughout the earth. What does that sound like? What Peter is saying. What is the devil doing? He's walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So when we understand our accuser, the devil, who's seeking to devour us, who's prowling around, trying to find failures in our lives and bring them before the Lord or before ourselves, and make us useless for the Lord. What must we do? Well, we must be vigilant, sober-minded. Our accuser is walking about. Listen, you cannot have spiritual victory passively. You can't just sort of sit around and think that God is going to somehow pick you up and make you this wonderful thing. He's calling you to exercise your sober-mindedness and your watchfulness to be ready for the attacks of the devil. Now, who makes you sober-minded? God does. Who sets you to recognize that you need to be watchful? God does. But listen, you must obey His Word. We can't come lackadaisically to our spiritual battles and then be surprised when we're defeated. Why do Christians struggle with besetting sins? Why do habits get caught up in our lives? Because we're not sober-minded and watchful. We don't think it's that big of a thing. Why? Because when we think of anxiety, we think of money. We think of relationships. We think of our houses. We think of our careers. The last thing on our minds is our spiritual battle with sin. And so Peter is saying, Lewis, listen, you've got to be serious about what you're facing. The devil is going to come to you as he came to Adam and Eve. He's not going to come with a full frontal attack. He's not going to put the ugliness of sin right before you and say, here, go ahead after this. He's going to come alongside you and he's going to act like he's on your side. He's going to tempt you 
with sin and make it say, oh, is, isn't will this just be so great? God's robbing you of joys and pleasures on this earth. And unless you are thinking clearly, sober-minded, and watching out for his attacks, what's going to happen when that happens? You're going to fall just like our father and mother fell. You're going to fall into sin. And so Peter is calling us to be ready for action, as he says in 1.13. So what is that action? It's rejecting worldly rebellion through sinful actions and pursuing Christ-likeness. Or pursuing likeness to Christ. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8. Listen, if we set our mind on what? The flesh. What does that bring about? Death. Now, I want you to note again where Peter, or where Paul is pointing us to, just as Peter is. Our minds. If we set our minds, if we think about the things of this earth, then that is going to bring about death. But if we set our mind on the Spirit, then we have life and peace. Now notice what he says. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If our minds are set on the things of the flesh, on the things of this world, then will we or will we not submit to God's law? We will not. Indeed, when our minds are captivated with the things of this world, what are we unable to do? Set our minds on God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now here's the glory of salvation. God comes and He gives us His Spirit. He changes us. He transforms us by His grace so that we, however, are not in the flesh but we're in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So this is the glory of the Gospel. The Spirit comes, gives us new life, regenerates us, causes us to turn to Christ and we find hope and faith in Him. But now, Peter or Paul is writing this to believers. So where should our minds as believers be set? On the flesh or on the Spirit? And the answer is clearly the Spirit. So where's your mind set? Is it sober-minded or is it set on the things of the flesh? Romans 12, 2. We know this one. Many can quote it off by heart. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are we transformed? By renewing our what? Our minds. So that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. If we're not sober-minded, then we're not going to be seeking to know those things that are good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians 2, Paul says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on where? The earth. Why? Well, here's the reality. If you're in Christ, all this stuff around you, you're dead to it. You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hallelujah. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The glories of the gospel. So how do we respond to that? Just sit around and say, that's great, I've got a ticket to heaven, I'm going to wait for God to make me more like Christ and be passive in our Christian lives? No. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Kill it! Paul says. He's calling upon you to kill it. How are we prepared to kill it? The gospel transforms us. We set our minds and are watchful so that when temptation comes, we recognize we're dead to that sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Again, it's not about us. 
How, when Paul says kill sin, is that a call for us to be prideful? Oh, I am so good at killing sin. No. The only reason you have any recognition of sin is because God has worked in your life. So praise God for that and then humbly prepare for battle by preparing your mind with sober-mindedness. So Paul, or Peter, calls us to be prepared here. And then, as we are prepared for spiritual battle, then we resist with dependence on God. Look again at verse 9. Resist him. So this devil, this accuser, who's walking about as a roaring lion, seeking to find in your life things where he can stand before God and accuse you, you must resist him. Resist him. We are commanded to resist our adversary. The term that's used here for resist calls for active engagement against a foe. It's used throughout the New Testament to speak of how people actively resisted other people. So, for instance, Paul uses it in, response, in regard to how he resisted Peter to his face. He came against him actively and said, listen, what are you doing only eating with the Jews? You need to stop this. It's spoken of of how Janus and Jambres resisted or went against Moses. Or how Alexander the coppersmith treated Paul's message of the gospel. He resisted it. So again, Peter is emphasizing active obedience by commanding it. It's not an option for the believer. You must resist the devil. We are responsible for fighting against sin. This is exactly what Peter is calling us to. But... As we have such a strong call that shows us our responsibility in this, we resist him, but we do it firm in what? Firm in our faith. We don't resist the devil looking to ourselves. Listen, the devil is not someone to be trifled with. When there was an argument about the body of Moses, the, the angel said, the Lord rebuke you. So when we come to resist the devil, we must do it as we stand firm in the faith. Again, notice what he says in verse, eight, or verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith. Jesus speaks of the power of the devil. And look at what he says here. I think we, we often brush past this, and we run very quickly to one aspect of this. He says, if possible. But I want you to, to just sort of sit with for a second the power that the devil has. He speaks of how false Christs and false prophets will arise. They'll perform signs and wonders and they'll do it with the power that the devil has. And if it was possible, these things would be so convincing that it could lead astray who? The elect. Now, praise God, it is not possible for the elect to be led astray. Praise God that no one can pluck us out of our Father's hands. But look at the power the devil has. If that were not the case, we would easily be deceived. And that's why we are thankful that our hope for victory is not in ourselves. It is in Jesus Christ. As John reminds us, little children, you're from God. You've overcome them. Why? Why have we overcome those in darkness? Because he who is in you is what? He who is in you is what? Greater than he who is in the world. That's where our faith comes into play. And we recognize that the power to resist the devil is found in trusting in the one who has a mighty hand, who is strong enough to defeat our foe. So we, by faith, 
stand in that power. Notice what Paul says regarding spiritual battle in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, and he's going to talk about the, the things that we love to talk about, things that junior church kids get those little armors of God and the shield of faith and the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit and the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, the helmet of salvation. We love to talk about all those things, and they're great. But listen, where does the strength come to even use those instruments that God has given us? We're strong in who? The Lord. And in the strength of His might. Reminding us again, Of what Peter says, we're humbling ourselves under what kind of hand that God has? The mighty hand of God. So this due role, faith in Christ's work that propels our own work is on display. And again, just to go back to Colossians chapter 3, you have died and your life is hidden where? With Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. So this is where humility meets action. Faith and then action. Faith that I'm not trusting in myself. And then action in obeying what God calls me to do to resist the devil. Now, when we keep these two things in balance, humility and action, we kill two dangers that tend to lurk in the Christian life. There, there, there are extremes that we find in, that we're tempted towards. Legalism and then permissivism. Permissivism? That sounds, I think, I think that's right, permissivism. Right. Or libertinism. First of all, if we are walking by faith, it's going to kill self-righteous legalism. If we do this humbly, then do we have anything to boast of? Listen, we are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that has provided everything for us for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. That is where we have the hope for spiritual victory. It's not in ourselves. It's in Him. So, do I have any right to be self-righteous? But what do we do? We look, not vertically, we look horizontally. Well, you know, I I don't have to deal with what this person deals with. We talk to, we see friends and family members and we see their struggle with sin and we think, well, I'm not struggling with that. Well, good for me. We look at sin's like homosexuality and transgenderism, and we stand and look down our noses at people who are caught up in those sins, and we think that we ourselves are somehow better than. That's not humility. That's arrogance. Now, we don't change the truth of what sin is. But we certainly don't use the fact that we are not falling into a particular sin as a reason for self-righteousness. So if we are truly fighting the battle against sin humbly, it's going to kill self-righteous and then legalism. What is legalism? It's adding our own standards to the standards of God. Listen, it's great if you have standards. Standards are fine. But don't bind your conscience to another person's. Unless it is clearly enumerated and described in Scripture, you have no right to say or look down upon someone who is not doing or keeping your standard. So it kills self-righteous legalism, but then it also seeks to humbly walk with God. And that's where, instead of letting the floodgates open, and indulging in sin because grace can abound, right? What does Paul say about that? God forbid! And so as we come humbly, recognizing that it's not me that's done this, I still, secondly, actively resist my adversary. I reject his arguments. I reject his temptations. I've been freed from sin to walk in righteousness with God. 
And so Peter calls us to do what James calls all of us to do. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, who does God oppose? The proud. Boy, that sounds familiar to something that Peter said. Oh, wait, he quoted the same thing in verse 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what do we do with that? What does James tell us to do with that? Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. And when we do it humbly, to independence upon God in full faith, what will the devil do? He will flee from you. Think of that. You can have victory. Not victory in yourselves, but victory in dependence upon Christ. As you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Here's the reality. Apart from Christ, all we can do is sin. But in Christ, guess what we don't have to do anymore? Sin. Hallelujah. If we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And then finally, humility considers the sufferings of all God's people. Someone who is not humble, someone that is prideful, they are very much me-centered, me first. That's not what the church is called to. As we resist the devil firm in our faith, we do it knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Final thing Peter calls us to as we resist the devil is to consider the church universal. As the devil is warring and walking about seeking whom he may devour, he is seeking to inflict suffering on our brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about Job. Think of, think of the emotional and physical distress that Job had. But what's interesting is the bulk of the book of Job is not about that type of suffering. You know what the bulk of the book of Job is about? How good of friends he had. As Job says, they are miserable comforters. And so Peter is calling us, don't be like Job's friends. Consider the suffering of your brothers and sisters around the world. This is so true for us today. Listen, we don't belong. This whole book is the path of a pilgrim. We're strangers, we're foreigners, we're exiles. We don't belong here. And neither do our brothers and sisters who face much greater horrors than sometimes we can even imagine. You woke up today under the banner of a country that respects your individual freedoms, that allows you to come and to assemble here. You woke up today in a very wealthy nation in this world. Do you realize you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are waking up today in arid, dry hot climates where the official religion of that nation is the darkness of Islam that seeks to beat men, into, men and women into submission to Allah and that if they were to come and gather together to worship God they would lose their lives in horrific ways Women being ravaged in unspeakable ways. Men being tortured and killed. And yet they still gather. They recognize the need, the important need to come and to worship with God's people. And so there's great hope. Great hope that we can resist 
the devil. Hebrews 11 is a chapter filled with people who resisted the devil. They did it by faith. We call it the hall of faith. It is faith in what Christ has done, but that faith is demonstrated in their obedience. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 as he's closing this up. All these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, as we look to those who have gone before us, to our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Old Testament who suffered for Him, the conclusion is, let us lay aside every weight, let us lay aside the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see how when we see the sufferings of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we see great hope and encouragement. So, we have an adversary who's walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We are to resist him, firm in faith, knowing that our brothers and sisters are facing the same things all across the world. In Zechariah chapter 3, we have an account of this actually happening. What the devil does as he stands as an accuser. Zechariah is writing here and there is this scene that plays out in the presence of the Lord. And Joshua, the high priest, comes before God. Now this is the high priest. Someone who was supposed to be holy in their entire life. Look at what happens. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to what? To accuse him. There we have that adversary, that prosecutor, that plaintiff. And he says, look, what this guy, look at him. Look at him. If we read down a little bit further, actually, you can drop down a little bit. It says that Joshua, at the very end there, Joshua was standing before the angel, and what type of garments was he wearing? Filthy garments. But notice what Yahweh says to our accuser. Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And here's the reality. The devil has a point. But God made a way for salvation in Christ. God provides redemption through His Son who took upon Himself the filthy garments of sinners like you and like me and even like Joshua the high priest. And He was the one who went through the fire as He bore God's wrath on the cross. And so what does God do in return? The angel said to those who were standing before Him, remove the filthy garments from Him. And the Lord says to Joshua, Behold, I've taken your iniquity, what? Away from you. And I will clothe you with what? Pure vestments. Do you realize that we who are in Christ are robed in the vestments of His righteousness? And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him in dark garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now we love this passage. But notice what else happens. 
the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now it's upon you. What must you do? You will walk in my ways. Keep my charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The call of the gospel never stops at the glories of redemption. It presses deeper so that we live out the reality of our cleansing in Christ every single day. We resist the devil who accuses us. The Lord rebuke you. But then we obey what God has said. As is said of the saints in Revelation 7, 13 through 14, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where are they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in what? The blood of the Lamb. The choir sang, would you be free of your burden of sin? There is what? Power in the blood. May we resist our adversary firm in faith as we cast our anxieties and our struggle against sin, we look to God for grace, and then we obey by that grace, resisting the devil and praying for our brothers and sisters who suffer around the world. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the hope we have in Christ, a hope that sets us in a place where we no longer have to sin, where we can resist the devil as we depend humbly upon the mighty hand of God. Father, may we leave this place this morning seeking to resist sin all the more in dependence on your grace. We pray all this in Christ.